Welcome to the In Awe Podcast, where we amplify women and empower a community through the mission and their message. I am your host, Sarah Johnson, English teacher and school principal turned author and entrepreneur, living my own leap of faith on a mission to teach masses. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at at Sarah S.A. Johnson. Be sure to subscribe to the In Awe Podcast so you can join me each week as I feature women who will leave us all in awe of their impact on our world. Hello, and welcome back to the In Awe Podcast. We kick off a new month with today's episode in our November series on EdTech Queens. Our guiding quote for the series is, technology will never replace great teachers, but in the hands of great teachers, it's transformational. That is our friend, George Kuros. This whole series will help us process the beauty of tech and celebrate the leadership of the women featured this month. It is such an honor to share with you our first guest. Hedrick Nichols is an award-winning author, consultant, and ed tech nerd who helps districts and organizations transform culture, practices, and outcomes through student-led learning, design thinking, and digital literacy. Her award-winning book, Finding Your Blind Spots, published by Solution Tree, helps educators, parents, and students create inclusive learning communities. Her workshops and keynotes for MASCD, CUE, VASD, etc., and districts throughout the U.S. and Europe inspire educators to get off the stage so that students can ideate, collaborate, and create their own experiential learning pathways. Hedrick, who has additionally written five nonfiction books for grades four through eight through Cherry Lake Publishing, also helps educators through coaching, courses, and weekly podcasts called Hashtag Small Bites. Hedrick received her MED from Texas A&M in Educational Technology and currently serves her district in North Texas as the pre-K through 12 ed tech curriculum and instructional specialist. Hedrick is the mother of one baby adult son. She's a former Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, Texas-born, former Swiss resident. Hedrick is passionate about transforming educational practices. In this episode, we discuss Hedrick's transition from music teacher to ed tech queen, how she uses simple technology to help children embed skills into real-world problems that are meaningful to them, and the impetus for Hedrick's journey into authoring and consulting around equity and inclusive environments for all children. Friends, I was so energized by this entire conversation and could have continued talking to Hedrick for hours. She is a brilliant, bright sprout in her world, and I am so deeply honored to share with you Hedrick Nichols' EdTech Queen story. Welcome, Hedrick Nichols, to the In Awe Podcast. I am so excited to have this conversation with you and to share you with my listeners. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. I am absolutely excited to be here. So Hedrick, I read your extremely impressive bio to start out this podcast, but I would love for you to be able to just share your current context with the listeners right now. What are you up to in this beautiful world of ours? Let's see. I am most recently the mother of an adult son. He turned 18 about six months ago. So that's kind of neat. Other than that, I, other than that, there's almost nothing bigger than that, but (laughs) I am an author of written six books and and, and several blogs and guest blogs and articles. I am an educator serving my district as ed tech specialist. I say, actually, I'm a middle school teacher serving my district as that, because even though I work at central management, I am, I'm, I'm a middle school teacher <laughs> working with them. Specialist is what I do, but who I am is a middle school teacher. And uh, I'm also a podcaster and consultant and I help educators create more equitable spaces for all, for all students. I'm over here just beaming. 
Because, okay, so I could catch all that from the bio, right? We know you're an author. We know you're a podcaster, all these things. But when you just give that real nice, charismatic description of, I'm a middle school teacher, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I said that with a lot of pride. A lot of pride. As you should. I love that. And I think that middle school teachers have a quirk about them. And I am one of them too. Although I'm just, as I listen to you, I'm, I'm envious of that confidence that that is where you belong. Because I feel like you could just, you know, be in so many different spaces. But middle school teachers have something really, really special about them. You know what? I've taught littles. I've taught high schools. But I middle school's home. It's home. And I, and, but I do understand that it's a special breed. When I went out on maternity leave many years ago, I remember calling around to see who might want to come out of, you know, mommying to come back into the classroom and take over my class. They go, oh, I'd love, I called out my music teacher friends. I was teaching music at the time. Oh, I'd love to. And then I'd say, great. Oh, super. All right. And they'd say, what grade? And I'd say, oh, sixth, seventh, eighth. And they'd hang <laughs> <up>. <laughs> you know. Hey. So yeah, we're special. <laughs> Well, not only that, music teachers, right? Because you have the whole like developmental thing going on with the sounds and the way their voices work and all of that. So kudos, extra layer of awesomeness. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that. I love it. So you were a music teacher and now you are more of an ed tech specialist, though there are, of course, so many facets of you. Uh, you know, we have you featured here on the Ed Tech Queens, which I was super intentional about. And I got to tell you, I had taken a hiatus from this podcast all last year. And when I was sitting down dreaming about who I could come back strong with, your name was in the top, and I was thinking, Ed Tech Queen is Hedrick Nichols. So, Can I get a t-shirt that says that? Because I really <laughs> Yes, we're going to have to get you a t-shirt for sure. That is awesome. Yeah, I, and, and you know, I fell in love with tech in the music in the music classroom. There were so many things that I could do when when well, I'm dating myself, when whiteboards were just beginning to be popular and when the internet was really you could actually find lyrics on the internet. That was revolutionary at the time. And so there were just a lot of things you could do with karaoke websites and stuff like that that opened up so many parts of what you that just opened up so many possibilities in the classroom that I realized that a lot of people just didn't know. There were a lot. There was a lot of fear, and there still is a lot of fear that the computer is somehow in competition with real learning. And I just knew that that wasn't the case. So I wanted to go, especially, and learn how to help non-natives, digital non-natives, to embrace all this wonderful possibility. Mm, okay, I love that. This entry into tech through your music lens. And so can you just take us all the way back there? And I'm just trying to envision this. And I, I know same, I think you and I might be around the same-ish close to age. Um, I'll make some guesses, but whatever. We're not going to reveal that here on the podcast. <laughs> but I was thinking about, um, yeah, lyrics being a thing. And I'm just curious, what were some of your favorite ways to use uh, tech in the music world in those early times? The first thing was that all of a sudden we had lyrics and background tracks to everything. I mean, to all of the pop songs, you could find that stuff online, which meant that I did not have to learn to play everything that we wanted to sing. And also, I mean, you know, playing piano or guitar, it's cute, but it's not like having the whole band, you know what I mean? And when you're singing Nickelback and you got the whole band and you can sing... 
<laughs> it so, absolutely does. <laughs> and I, you know, I have office hours and they're on Zoom and I visit campuses and I am the QR code queen. What? Oh, you don't know how to use Schoology? Wait, let me. Here you go. Here's here. Use your QR code. There you go. There you go. So I built out resources. Uh, we lost most of our librarians. So I made sure that we have a virtual library, you know, those kinds of things. But if, if you're listening and you are in my district, I really need a team. Okay, thank mm-hmm. you. Right. You do, of course, need a team to work that forward. And especially if you've lost your library media specialists, uh, you know, who are often the people to be able to coordinate with all that. Uh-huh. It's funny. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm a current library media specialist. Whoa, I did. I said, oh, she'll be one of my favorite people. Literally. <laughs> all my, oh, seriously, my favorite friend at, at work is a lot, both of them, actually, one from my home campus and one now at Central Management. Both of those are library media specialists. Well, you know, this is a new world for me and it's definitely uh, got my interest peaked in terms of the role that you serve and also just thinking in terms of local, how those collaborations are so needed and yet so challenging. I, it's just really hard to get everything coordinated these days um, and to collaborate. I, um, part of it is I'm a K-12 you know, media specialist. And so there's just a lot of um, nuance that goes with that. <laughs> uh, so, but I'm curious too, what is the, the context? You're at a charter school. And so what's the size of your campus? Oh, yeah. Campuses. We are all the way from (laughs) Dallas to Fort Worth. And so about a 50 mile spread. And we've got 21 campuses. So, you know, lots of kids. Yeah. I needed you to say that out loud because everything is bigger in Texas. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. (laughs) So I kind of assumed it was going to be something along those lines. And yes, you need nine people to do that work. That's crazy. Uh I talked to some friends in Birdville. They're um, a little smaller than us, and their team is nine. So that's why I'm like, I, I want nine. We need nine. It's a good number to land on. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to walk away from this EdTech Queen idea too much until we've really thoroughly touched upon it. And I guess one major question that I do have for you in thinking in terms of the way you serve, what do you think is the I know you said that a lot of people have gone back to paper and pencil. What do you think is the greatest joy that you've seen where tech is infused into the classroom for you personally? Oh, God. Student choice, global connection. You know, we talk about real world learning and honestly, it makes me want to gag and throttle the people saying it because real (laughs) world learning is just not a word problem. That's not real world learning. (laughs) You know, it's like, Come on, people. We can do better. Hey, guess what? What is a problem that you have at home? My mom's car broke down. For real? What kind of car does she drive? Okay, guys, let's look up and see how much. All right, great. Let's look up on. Let's look online and see where you can get that repaired. Great. See if you can use your phone and give through. I want to go three groups. Everybody, take out your phones. Yes, use your phones in class. And I want you to call the department, the service department. And I want you to get an estimate. How do we do that? <laughs> You know what I mean? And then say, okay, let's say her mom makes $70,000. What percentage of her income is this? There's just so much you can do with a computer with zero apps, just using Google and a an actual problem. So things like that, and, or, or asking kids, we did a project a couple of years ago. Um, what gets on your nerves? We were, we were walking walking them through the IV design cycle. And so to teach that, it's like, what gets on your nerves? What do you mean? I mean, I mean, what gets on your nerves? 
because the quite the IB question is, what is the problem that we need to solve? What's our mission? What gets on your nerves? My brother steals my candy. Okay, how could you solve it? I could make a hidey hole. Okay, what like what kind? So one student actually took paper, the like like packets of paper. She somehow cut most of it out and glued it onto a box that was just about the size of a 250 page pack of paper so that it looked like a it looked like a sack of paper. And that's where she keeps all of her what her money, her her candy, her whatever she doesn't want her little brother to find out. So doing things like that and allowing kids, there's so many ways to show learning. When you look at a standard, unpack it. Talk to your kids. What does this mean in real language? Make a kid-friendly I can statement as a learning target, and then let them let them decide how they want to show you their learning. You know, work down with worksheets. <laughs> I love it. I'm hearing the passion, and it totally makes sense. You know, we are so much more capable than taking these fabricated problems and creating something that doesn't even really exist when we're the we got enough problems in the room let's fix them here <laughs> i love that and those things are much more important to kids you know they don't care about how many beans you need to plant in a garden you know it's like really i, I hate gardening i don't i don't want that's not interesting and so the people who are writing these things are often very much out of touch with the populations we serve I'm like come on dude really you know, ask how, ask how many tacos it takes to feed, you know, a family of six and all of their cousins on Tuesday night. You know, you get you get twenty dollars to go to Taco Bell. Pull up the menu. What can you buy? Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just thinking how refreshing that must feel when you are able to provide that direction. You know, for the people that you're helping in the classrooms, since you're not doing that right now yourself currently with the students. But obviously not too hard to stay in tune with what they need. And you're just making me feel like remembering. And I teach 300 kids every week, K through six. Well, it's actually every other week. And I'm just processing. And I've I'm, I'm been so stuck trying to figure out how to teach them you know, some of the technical skills. But I'm just thinking, I got to get off of that and figure some problem solving and some broader units and just have the skills embedded in there. And that sounds like, well, why wouldn't you think that way? But except I don't know why I wasn't thinking that way. <laughs> because we've been conditioned as educators. Here's the curriculum. These are the standards. Do this. And I'm yeah. like, that's dull. They can learn that by doing this. It's boring for me, right? Like it's exactly. got to be boring for them. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's it. I mean, just I, I, I don't know. Some of the stuff it looks like. Are you kidding me? What you know? How? how when's the last time you were a kid? So, mm-hmm. and I, if I can give you two two tips, Canva and Book Creator are two great tools to really open up lots and lots of skills. But the kids can do almost anything. One one simple thing I did to teach Canva was I said, "Here's a new app. Make yourself a dream party invitation." What do you mean? I said, it's a dream party. Plan it. What, I don't know how to use this app. Yeah, I know. You got 30 minutes. You'll be fine. Did anybody teach you how to use Fortnite? No? Oh, okay, great. Go for it. Uh, that's awesome. I love that so much. And so just curious because I use Canva as a teacher. Is it free for students too? Free for students? Because hey, if you have a teacher account, you can push it out to your classroom through Schoology, through Google Classroom. Yep. All right, friends, that was – you just took the number one tip right away from from Edric if you didn't know that. Oh, I love it. Uh, Yeah, I mean – and actually, I was thinking about going back to your whole idea of interdisciplinary units. I mean, how much I could do 
in my tech class or my media class with the art teacher or the music teacher, you know, even in Canva itself, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are coding programs where you can actually create songs. Code HS has programs. Hour of Code has programs. So you can do a computer science, music, media thing all together and then make them design a cover for it or a cover letter for it in Canva. So yeah, such great things. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, so we got pretty technical there. So thanks, listeners, for indulging me for a minute. Um, I'll be sending the check in the mail, Hedrick. (laughs) But I, I also love, so you have this whole day job, you know, where you're helping with the QR codes and doing the ed tech queen stuff, but you also have published multiple books. And what I'm noticing about the titles of your books is that although certainly your tech world would tie in here, you really have more to say about equity and inclusive environments and super passionate about that. And I was watching um, some of the little snippets that you have on your social media, um, your YouTube channel, all those things. So let's dive into your whole other world with consulting and work around practices for, you know, equity and inclusion. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a real passion. I was reading an article just today in Washington Post. Um, I think it's by A. Johnson, I don't remember her first name, and Dan Keatings. And they talked a bit about COVID and how if you are about in your 50s, you are the first generation of post-Jim Crow babies. You know, you were alive when Jim Crow was going on. And for those who may not know what Jim Crow is, it is the, it was apartheid, the segregated South, those systems that said, you know, white water fountain, black water fountain, or whites could sit in the bottom of the movie theater and black sat in the back in the balcony, those things. So having said that, I was this OBF. It's a recurring theme. The one black friend in my school, I was the only kid in my class. Mm-hmm. And you would think that my son, who was born in 04, would have had a very different upbringing or a different experience than I did. But he came home and he said to me once, he said, you know, mom, I hate Black History Month. And I'm like, what? What are you, kid? What, what are you saying, kiddo? What's up? And he's actually, I didn't. I put on my mom voice and said, what is it, honey? Why? <laughs> every t- And he goes, every time they ask a question about something or talk about something, everybody looks at me. And I think he was one of three kids at the time. And, and you know, just being hyper visible still, you know, in the 2010s, I thought, gosh, we really, we really haven't gotten as far as we should or as we could if we would work intentionally to get to know one another better, to, to really acknowledge our history and move on from it. And so he was kind of the impetus. Um, I saw how people reacted to him when he was um, a kid and how they began to react to him when he grew facial hair and got taller. Um, kind of the threat of the black man thing became apparent. He started to have things happen that were just that didn't happen to his friends who were white. And so wanting to make a difference for my child and hopefully for his children and for the kids who looked like us really drew me into this work. I deeply appreciate that whole perspective and thank you for sharing it. And you said OBF. One is, black friend. Yeah, is that something you came up with? That is that a common? Uh, I had heard it before. 
I can really, really appreciate just the snippets that you provide in your social media talks and just processing all of the different topics. And of course, after, uh, you know, the pandemic and, um, you know, specifically the George Floyd murder, it was really apparent that there were, I don't know, just (laughs) a lot of polite movement around the fact that, oh, these issues don't exist anymore, but they do until those events kind of started happening and being more in the public eye. And of course we've, we were at home more and paying attention, but do you feel the need for your voice and your services has increased in the last couple of years, or has this been something that you've been able to focus on for a while? I'm just curious Uh, myself. It's interesting that you should say, remember when George Floyd died, the whole world, around the world, there was, you know, Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter 2, et cetera, et cetera. And then you got a little push up with pushback with All Lives Matter and, hey, what what do you mean Black Lives Matter? That's racist. You got a little pushback. And now you have, I think, 500 and, oh, I can't get the number right, 512, 576, over 500 districts who have legislation and school board regulations around what pundits are calling critical race theory. And the way the laws are generally written, they are written to control what kind of conversations are going on in classrooms surrounding issues of race and identity. And uh, three of the books that I've written are actually on a proposed banned book list here in Texas. Because and, and and there are some people like Ibram Kendi, Toni Morrison, Lupita Nyong'o. Um, any book, most of the books were either by authors uh, from the LG community or Black and Brown authors. And so there's the pendulum swung completely one way when we saw George Floyd, you know, taking his last breath. But now there's a swing in the other direction and there are words being thrown around like indoctrination. And so I would say in the last year, there's some contracts that I lost simply because people don't know what to do with the topic because they are afraid. You see people losing their jobs, um, you know, in highly contested districts or, you know, highly contested um uh, happenings across Texas, Florida, Arkansas, st- states where 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 some of the parents are very vocal. And um yeah, it's 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 an interesting time because children still need our support. And when children don't see themselves reflected in history, we miss out on something. And when we ourselves as a country don't want to acknowledge the truth of our past past well, you know, you don't know history, you're destined to repeat it. There's a danger in that or, you know, an, an, a lack of growth, if nothing else. So a pretty significant danger in that. And I appreciate that really eloquent way that you shared, you know, the continuum of where we're at, because it is so true in the library world. I was just at a networking meeting and we were talking about having policies in place for when we have challenged books and you know the discussion points that we could have when it comes to having inclusive collections and it's a frustrating thing <laughs> you know to be in the field of education knowing that it's our job not just to help like you said students feel represented but darn it to show representation for everybody um so that those cycles just you know don't continue i was stunned recently i i work in a Northwestern 
rural Wisconsin, very little diversity on several levels here. And one of the things that I really do try to do is increase the collection so that there's really wide ranging representation. I try to be mindful of that. And I work with, you know, elementary school kids and I had a primary age child looking for, you know, at books. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book Hair Love. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Such a gorgeous image of a father, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's on YouTube too. And if anyone doesn't know it, you haven't seen the book, you can look up Hair, Lo- Hair Love on YouTube and it's there. Oh, it's so gorgeous. Well, then we're going to look that up and then we're going to see that beautiful image, right? And the stunning piece that I wanted to share is that this beautiful child looked at that picture and said, oh, a demon when he looked at the father. And I'll tell you, it it just, it took me back a minute. I'm grateful that I will have the opportunity to share that book, you know, to help show that's a beautiful book about a father who just is giving this beautiful, loving look. He is not demonic, but just shows that lack of exposure. And wherever those biases have come into play or the whatever message was there for that child to look at that picture and see anything but love, I feel like it's a strong calling that we have to keep fighting this little battle that we've had we, come up. And you I'm, know? I'm so glad you mentioned that because often – I talk from the point of, you know, kids need to see themselves. Yeah. So, of course, teachers say, well, I don't have that problem in my district. We are very, we don't have a lot of diversity, but that's a great reason to explain to people why it's so important, regardless of what your population looks like. Well, absolutely, because I think that's one of the things that's just nuanced and I just, I don't have enough of these conversations anymore, so I'm kind of stumbling, but I feel deeply about it, that it's so important for all of us to take that up, and especially those of us that have, you know, the ability in the classrooms. Um, It's a scary time, right, to stand and say, these are the things that we need to be doing for all children to create a world where we're not seeing anything but that father looking lovingly at his daughter. So we can't have the voices silenced and we need to be brave enough to continue these discussions and to share this, you know, beautiful images and teach. But it is harder and harder in this political climate. So just kudos to you and please know that your voice is really important. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for being on that road with me. I appreciate that as well. Well, in my little ways, right? And uh, it's That's just... I call it small bites. You know what I mean? The, yes. The, people talk about dismantling systemic racism and systemic oppression. And while I acknowledge that that's what ultimately needs to happen, I can only handle one brick at a time. <laughs> so this is perfect. Let's talk about small bites in your podcast and dive into that. So people are going to want to continue to engage with your content. What is that all about? Oh, come and join me um, every week, Monday mornings at 5 a.m. Uh, usually it's actually out by Sunday night, 10 a.m., 10 p.m. But for drive time Monday mornings, I put out a small bites. It's between five and seven minutes. And I usually connect it to some strategy that you can use immediately in the classroom or on your campus to either reflect on or to take action on to create more equitable spaces. 
That's so good. And so I'm glad that we fit that in because I know that I am definitely going to be paying quicker attention to that or more um, focused attention and put that on my rotation because I've been deeply inspired by the ones that I've been watching, just prepping for this interview to know you better. And what a great resource. And you've got years and years of blogs and (laughs) all of this great content that's out there for the world to consume. So listeners, you've got to connect with her with the books. If you are looking for a consultant to bring in, I love how on your website you have your topics, you have courses that you just really have been giving a lot to the world for quite a little while. So thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you. All right. So we got to get to our two standard questions and I can't even believe that we're at that point because I should just talk to you forever and make this a two-part series. (laughs) You are so easy to talk to. This has been great. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. So I will ask you those two standard questions. Let's see where we go with it. Okay. Okay. Great. If you could write a letter to yourself at any age or stage, what would you say? Oh, this one's an easy one. Um, Be brave enough to be your authentic self. You will find your people. Don't feel like you've got to go along to get along. And by that, I mean, you don't have to laugh at the, you know, misogynistic or or misogynistic or racist jokes. You don't have to play along when someone's being low-key mean. You know, you don't have to do it for yourself or if they're doing it to someone else. You don't have to join in talking about some kid who's probably really struggling and needs, you know, the last thing they need is to have a group of people against them. You don't have to do those things. You'll find your people and and, and it's better to be alone. And for me, it was, you know, I grew up and grew up and went to high school in East Texas that's my, that was the last couple of years of high school, and it was fairly rural, fairly racist. And when you had white friends, it was just normal to laugh at the N-word jokes because, you know, oh, don't make a big deal of it. And when I look back, I, I wish I had, had started this journey earlier and said, you know, I know that can be funny, but it's also kind of mean if you think about it. I, I, I wish I'd been that brave. So that's what I would tell myself. You don't have to go along to get along. I'm so glad that you shared that. And though I wish that wasn't your lived experience, I love how you're using it now. And, you know, just this, you never know, this podcast might be something that opens up someone else, you know, their world. It's okay. And And no, I'd rather you not touch my hair. It's okay. It is okay. (laughs) I love it. I love, love, love it. Thank you. And how about this one? If listeners find themselves in a pit of fear or doubt, what could you say to help them rise up out of it? Honey, just keep walking. That's what my great-grandmama would have said. (laughs) And I mean that very sincerely. I remember this one time I was at the beach with the cutest guy and his brother and his little sister. And I stood up. I got got caught in the waves. The awful thing was that my bikini top came down. And I kept trying to get up and the wave would knock me down and it knocked me down again. And every time I tried to get up, it just knocked me down. I've been through some personal things. I was widowed at 30, which doesn't happen to anybody. I mean, it does, but it's so, it, what does it happen to? And and that particular period in life reminded me of that standing there, you know, half topless facing the beach with the cute guy staring at me and not being able to stand up. And the waves just kept coming and knocking me down. But I kept getting up. And I kept getting up and I kept getting up and I finally got my top up. And yes, his little sister or cousin said, ah, you were so funny. I saw you, Chi Chi. <laughs> <laughs> Which was one of the 
the most embarrassing moments of my whole life, but I survived it. And I'm here to tell about it on a podcast and <laughs> laugh about it. So really in those moments when, when you're just eaten up by fear and doubt and, and grief and, and just when the bad stuff has got you, I concentrate on gratitude. You know, sometimes just I, I, I slept and I got up and, and really just keep walking, just purpose that, that you won't quit, you know, keep walking. It's such a profound uh, example. <laughs> Obviously, that memory is just staying there. It's stored. It's tied to an emotional receptor in your brain, so you can't lose that. But then to tie it to this other massive life event of being widowed and – Obviously, we've learned from this whole interview as well as all of the other highlights from your life that you have absolutely been able to keep bumping up out of those waves. And I'm deeply impressed by that. When, if there, you know, so you shared that about the coming out of the pit or fear or doubt. And I think one of the main things that you said to me ahead of the interview recording about this experience of being widowed was you, people ask you, how do you get through things? What would be your response to that? Just don't stop. Just literally do not. I mean, there were some moments that I did not want to get up and I did not want to engage. And I I did not know how long I was going to cry every single day. And I remember my mom saying to me, don't worry about how long it's going to take you to feel better. Just use your energy to feel better. It happens when it happens. And at that time, it took me about a year and a half to really feel, begin to feel like myself. I tend to be more of a sanguine up, you know, that kind of high energy person. And to be sad for that long was so unlike me. I didn't, I didn't know myself, which was scary, but I just got up and, and kept my routine strong. And, and I got to smile again. That acute grief stage and then going through all those phases, I just appreciate that you would share that with us because the other piece is that we're so used to sharing our professional lives and, you know, some things about our current personal lives, but it's something to say that you've really come through a lot um, in your life. And I just so appreciate that your voice is out there and that I get to amplify it on my podcast. I'm so deeply honored, but that we can also continue to engage with you in so many different ways because you have chosen to give of yourself. And that is really something that is super brave and very special. Well, thank you. I hope that, especially if somebody's listening and going through some dark times, feel free to connect to me. I say I'm an expert in loss. And um, if you see me on podcasts and stuff, you might not know it because that, that smile is a winner. Um, so it should give you hopefully hope that you, you two can, can smile again. And have an, uh, what, how did you say, a, uh, an adult baby? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Go on, move on and have an adult baby. Get to kick him out of the house. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> Oh, I love it. Oh, goodness. Well, Hedrick, thank you so, so much for your time and for everything that you've given us on this podcast. I am really in awe of you and so grateful that we got to make a connection and that you would be willing to share so much of yourself with the In Awe community. And so if they would like to get a hold of you, we've mentioned your website and your blog. What is the best way for them to interact with you after this? Twitter is definitely the space that I'm in the most, but I'm on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, all of the major platforms, rarely on Facebook. But if you know how to spell my name, H-E-D-R-E-I-C-H, then you can find me on all of those platforms. 
Awesome. Well, and we will be sure to link all of those in the show notes to make it super easy for you, even though we do now know how to spell your name. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you so much, Hedrick. And I just wish you so many blessings as you enter into the end of this year and uh, this new phase of parenting and everything else that this is going to come your way with all the blessings. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. I continue to be completely awe-inspired by every single guest on this podcast, and I am so grateful every time you choose to share, rate, review an episode. It matters so greatly to the mission and the message of our guests, and I appreciate every time you help one another rise by lifting up the message. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you being a part of this awe-inspiring community.